With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, this is Jenny Allen and you are listening to the Made for This podcast. everyone, this is Chloe. Welcome to another episode of the Made for This podcast. Today, Jenny is interviewing John Mark Comer. John Mark is a pastor in Portland, Oregon at Bridgetown Church. He's also the author of a new book coming out called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And you guys don't want to miss this. You'll hear more about him at the end of the show. But I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Jenny and John Mark Comer. So I am excited, John Mark. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh, absolute joy. So let's talk about this idea of being overwhelmed and where it comes from because it's real. It's everywhere. In fact, I speak to a lot of women and I'll ask them questions sometimes. And when I say how many of you are anxious or overwhelmed, it's almost the whole room. So yeah, what is this problem and where does it come from? Yeah, I mean, there's no short answer to that. You know, I think you have the kind of surface level causes that are technological, such as, you know, we're just barely over a decade into this little thing called the smartphone and urbanization and people living in cities and traffic. And we're still only a century into the automobile, which is a blip in the human history story, you know? So there's the kind of surface level issues of just noise and traffic and busyness and the phone and digital distraction and American working Americans working more hours than ever before and most homes being dual income now and then the stress of you know raising kids and both parents working and just there's all the surface level stuff. But then there's, you know, I think below that a way deeper level like human condition thing that goes biblically like back to the Garden of Eden. You see this idea of overwhelm and humans kind of transgressing limitations literally on page three of the bible you know so i think there's this kind of dual layer um john ortberg who's a pastor i love and mentor and friend has this great line he says that you know hurry isn't just the sign of a disordered schedule it's the sign of a disordered heart and i think that's what he's kind of speaking to is that dual layer there's the schedule technology phone busyness kids and soccer that thing but then below that there's the whole human Am I enough? Am I good enough? Can I control my life? What if everything spins out of control? You know, all the deeper human undercurrents of the soul that fuel the busyness of our culture and our life. Well, and there's such a prize on it, right? And you talk about this in your book. I loved your book, by the way. It spoke to me. And I honestly, I feel like we probably were living parallel lives when you were pulling back from the church. I was pulling back I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was it was the same thing. I mean, things grew when things are successful. Yeah. You know, keep saying yes. This is a good thing. Right. Good thing. Good thing. Good thing. And then you wake up and you go, wait, I don't I don't like this life. And and who I am in this life and who I'm becoming. Yeah. And ultimately, I mean, for you and I and a lot of people, it's it's ministry and it's a good thing. And and it's hard to say no because you know that the work matters so much. But 
But I loved your journey. And I feel like every, it'll speak to everybody, whether you're in ministry or not. I think the deliberate way you rebuilt your life is so compelling. Oh, well, you're very kind. It it doesn't feel virtuous when you're in it from the inside. It feels more like, you know, just an honest appraisal of burnout and overwhelm and exhaustion and anxiety. And, you know, the nice thing about being a parent and being in a marriage is all of your stuff is like, that's just such a mirror to your soul, you know, and who you actually are, not who you want to believe that you are. And so, I mean, I, it, it doesn't feel virtuous to me. It feels like a reckoning with reality that has brought me onto a very different kind of life journey that I, oh, I'm so grateful for. I feel grateful, not proud. So let's talk about some of the nuance of those things because it's kind of charming and cute that you wanted to be able to, was it bike or walk to work? Uh, both, <laughs> but walk ideally, yes. <laughs> I so relate to this. I Zach and I talk about this. Something about that is I think it represents way more than just your commute. It's the idea that you would run into people that you know and that there would be a simplicity to your life. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I just, yeah, I mean, that's part of a larger story. I was leading a multi-site, for lack of a better word, church and driving all over the city. And Portland's not a huge town, but still there was plenty of time in the car. And I just felt more and more and more scattered. And again, two layers. There's the kind of surface level logistical layer and then the undercurrent of the heart layer. And, you know, the surface level is the one that you can take some of the clearest steps to just change, you know, using willpower and such. And one of them was it just felt so scattered. And so, yeah, the dream was what if we just kind of pastored one church in one part of the city, which is so ridiculous to even phrase it that way. And, you know, what if I did my whole life within, you know, a mile or two square and walked to work and knew my neighbors and walked my kids to school and that kind of a thing. So that that was just kind of a dream that wouldn't go away. Just And I, I think that was symbolic, um, less of wanting to walk to work and more of wanting to live an integrated life. Right. And um, so I think that's what that represented for me. And you don't need to live within walking distance of your church to live an integrated life. But for me as a pastor, that was a big part of it, you know? And um, there's a long pastoral tradition of the parish and of pastors walking yes. the parish and praying over their parish and taking, you know, a friend of mine defines a parish. I'm not Anglican, so I'm not in that world. But a friend of mine defines a parish as a geographic area of spiritual responsibility. Mm. And most people and most churches practice of the way of Jesus is placeless. It's not rooted in a space and that's very counter, I think, to the New Testament vision of church, which is very much rooted in a place. And some of that's just because of the automobile and life and America, and it's not all bad. But I, yeah, I just wanted to live an integrated life where, you know, I was just tired of where the things that I gave lip service to as my values were not actually showing up in my body, my schedule, my budget, my time. And so I wanted to just try to close that gap and live an integrated life. Well, I know that for everybody listening, they're thinking to themselves, okay, yes, I'm overwhelmed. I hear some of the reasons for that, but I don't know how to make a change. And I want to talk about that that moment of change for you because if you haven't read the book or you don't know, what you did was pretty radical. You pulled back from a lot of leadership and a lot of good things and really focused on one location and you came in. You got smaller. <laughs> and I think that that takes bravery and honesty. 
And so talk about that moment and what you were afraid of losing by saying no to so much. Well, you know, there were fears on both sides. I mean, you know, leaving that kind of the mega church, which for me, and I'm not, I don't mean that as a, some kind of a polemic against large church. For me, that was symbolic of leaving a life that was about, you know, accumulation and accomplishment and upward mobility and fast and faster and go, go, go and all of that. Um, is what that was symbolic for me in my journey. I'm not saying that is for all other people. But I think for me, there was the fear of losing my self-worth, my identity. You know, for several years after I left, I not, do not remotely feel that way anymore, but I felt like my best years were all behind me. And, you know, it sounds idyllic. Like I went on sabbatical and I moved into the city and I walked to work and I practiced Sabbath and, you know, spent more time with my kids. Actually, I felt like a drug addict, you know, coming off meth or something, you know, going through withdrawals over just, I mean, hurry is a form of dopamine addiction, you know, as is the phone and so many other things. So there were those fears of what if I lose my, you know, voice in the kingdom of God? What if I miss God's calling on my life? It feels weird to turn down good opportunities um, because the lie that so many of us believe is any good opportunity is from God which is it was so not true. Some of them, I think, are fully demonic. If the enemy can't under-promote us, he'll over-promote us before our character and rhythms of grace can sustain us. So a lot of those were fears. But then fears on the other side were, who am I becoming? And what if 30 years from now our church is huge and great and whatever, but I've lost my children or I've lost my soul or I never became a person of love or my marriage is just fidelity and nothing more, you know? So there were fears on both sides. And I think, you know, you can't, you can't live well based on fear. There's just no possible way. Well, you're right. And I think, though, that is what paralyzes so many people from saying no and from making better choices, right? Is, Absolutely. And so I think you're right, viewing it as an addiction. And like, this is something I love what you said about the enemy will over promote you past what you can sustain. Because oh, yeah. It's killing people. And I would say, I mean, we've all seen a lot of strong leaders fall in recent years. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's not new. But I would say probably behind a lot of that are, are patterns like this. It's not some big sin choice usually. No, that's been the big thing. It's not like an affair or embezzlement of money. A lot of it's just emotionally unhealthy, workaholic, ambitious people who never let Jesus do the soul work in them. And that's the crazy thing about leadership of any kind. You know, if you think about the concept of like a shadow side, like we have this dark underbelly to the goodness of our personhood before God, like the more leadership you have, whether it's of one two-year-old child or a mega church or anything in between or above, uh, the more leadership you have, the more you project your shadow side onto other people and they become the beneficiary of your light and the, you know, the victim of your shadow, you know? And yeah, I mean, I think I, I had a key mo conversation with my mentor when I was processing this quite a while ago. Like, how do you say no to opportunities that are great opportunities for good things in the kingdom of God that feel like they matter? And like, how do I say no to this? And, you know, we were talking about this idea of under promotion, over promotion. And he began to just point to some of these pastors that, you know, were maybe a decade ahead of me who imploded. And some of them ended up on the, you know, front page of the New York Times or just caused, you know, the scandal in cities or across the nation, whether they're well known or not. And that's when it realized me, oh, I can miss out on God's calling on my life through under promotion, but I can also miss out on it through over promotion. 
And in fact, that one's more dangerous because then I, I wreak havoc in more people, you know? So it was a real sobering time for me. Like I am not becoming a person of love in the way of Jesus on the current path that I'm on. So I have to radically overhaul and change and slow down my life to get back on the track of apprenticeship to Jesus, to becoming a person of love. And I know that that, I mean, I just read about your story and I know that that was a huge life change, but it's a daily decision, right? Mm, 100%. So let's talk about Sabbath. You love Sabbath. My, my office, I told you, my office all listens to your sermons and your podcast and they love, uh, we talk about you a lot and they talk about Sabbath a lot because of you. And so let's talk about it, why it matters so much to you. Yeah. Well, first let's talk about it being the only one of the 10 commandments that Christians in America brag about breaking, you know, mm. like nobody comes into church and brags about an affair that week or murder or how they lied to a client. But I regularly hear people, oh, I you know, just worked 10 days in a row, or I just answered 600 emails, or I was up till two in the morning pulling on, you know, all night or whatever. Um, we brag about transgressing our limitations, you know? But yeah, I think a part of that whole process for me was coming into Sabbath. I, I did not grow up in a church tradition where Sabbath was even on the radar. Sabbath was like either a weird Jewish thing or for super legalistic Christians. And there's a very strong theology of what we would have called the Lord's Day, which was Sunday church. And I think there was a little bit more than just church. There was like, you know, this is the Lord's Day. But I think it was coming out of a cultural architecture where, I mean, it's so recently that you could even like go shopping on a Sunday, which now of us, we'd laugh at that. But I mean, you're talking about in the 1960s is when the laws started to change in most of our country. So I think my parents still had that cultural architecture in mind. And so there was a whole generation that didn't have to be taught to Sabbath. It was kind of handed to them, whether they enjoyed it or not, through the cultural and even legal architecture of our country. But I grew up in a generation that had the exact opposite, you know, there's zero cultural architecture for it. And then there was no theology for it. So I had to come into it later and slowly and haltingly. And it took a while for my wife and my family to get into it. Now we're all like absolutely obsessed with it. And it's the highlight of our week and we adore it. And it's become, other than morning prayer, it has become the anchor practice in our both emotional health, familial life, and spiritual kind of awareness of God. Like no doubt it's the anchor practice. Okay. So tell us what it looks like. What is it, What are the disciplines of it? And for your family, and I know it can look different for everybody, but what does yeah, it look like? I always hesitate that because, you know, it's so... Once you get down to the practice of it, it's it's helpful, but it's so different from person to person. So, you know, at 30,000 feet, like I'll kind of walk people through a really quick theology of Sabbath. Just there are four different ways you can translate and, and most like in the NIV and in most translations of the Bible that the, the word Shabbat is translated and it's stop or to rest or to delight or to worship. And that's basically the fourfold movement of Sabbath right there. Stopping. So we kind of run it through the trifecta of, you know, stop working. So you don't, and that's not just work that you get paid for. It's work in general. And so that's the difference between a day off and a Sabbath. You know, day off, you do all sorts of work. It's just the work you don't get paid for. You're mowing the lawn, you're paying bills, you're catching up, you're doing your stuff, you know, and you play and shop and whatever you do on a day off. Um, so we stop working. We stop worrying. Like it's a day to just set all of your anxiety aside. And like those things will be there when you come back. And it's a day to stop, um, you know, even thinking 
about working and it's a day to stop wanting, you know? So it's a day traditionally where you don't buy, you don't sell, you don't shop, there's no commerce because it's a day to celebrate what you have gratefully before God rather than, you know, wrestle with what you don't have yet, what you want. So there's the stopping, there's the resting in a whole, and that's holistic rest. So sleep is like the first foundation of Sabbath is like sleep 10 hours. I mean, we'll sleep. My wife will sleep 11, 12 hours on Sabbath. My kids will sleep in, you know, it's just like sleep time in our house. Then there's delighting. So it's psychologists have this pleasure principle idea, you know, where like on a birthday or an anniversary, you stack like five or six or seven of your favorite things and you cram them all into one day to make it like the most epic day possible. We kind of do a mild version of that every Sabbath, just pleasure stacking. How do we, mm. how do we cultivate delight as, and this is maybe Ignatian spirituality in me, like as a, as a way of like recognizing God's goodness and love in our life, whether that be through a cup of coffee or pumpkin muffins in the fall or a nice dinner or a bottle of wine or whatever it is, like how do we cultivate like goodness and delight um, through even creational kind of things, just as a way to get in touch with God through our senses. And then finally, the last movement of worship, like how do it's, it's not just a day off. It's not just a day to veg out and watch the crown on Netflix. It's a day to like orient our whole being back to God, where we've been sucked into busyness and hurry and overload and just rest in his love for us, you know? So those four movements of, you know, stopping and resting and delighting and worshiping really frame our day. We Sabbath, um, because Sunday is kind of a marathon work day for me, we Sabbath Friday night through Saturday night, which is wonderful. So we start with a huge family dinner. We light the candles of Sabbath. We read a psalm. I bless the children. We eat together. We do highlight of the week. We do this big, giant cookie. stole this idea from my sister, but we like throw a giant batter of cookie in a huge cast iron pan and put the whole thing in the oven, just one giant like 15 inch cookie, pull it back out and then we'll dump a whole thing of ice cream on the top and we'll just all take forks, put it on the middle of the table and just all dig in as we do highlight of the week, you know, um, and just as an attempt again, just to cultivate delight, gratitude, worship, family. So yeah, then we sleep and there's lots of time for prayer. I'm introverted, so I love to pray and read, but then there's also family time. I make brunch for the kids in the summer. We'll go on a walk or take the dog out or whatever, you know, but we don't really go out much where it's pretty, we're kind of homebody people. So we just rest. Our phones are fully off. Our devices are fully off. There's literally none of that. So there's lots of poetry and walking the dog and playing games and sleeping and reading and praying and talking and catching up and just being together but it's a it's a beautiful it's it's nine times out of ten is the best day of our week hey guys a lot of you have heard of it gathering and probably are part of it but if you don't know what it is it is this sisterhood of women all over the world that want to see God unleashed through our lives and in our lives and we want to use our gifts for the glory of God and so if you have a heart to see your community come together around the things of God we want to give you the tools to do it we want to equip you with everything you need and one of the ways we do that is we host this gathering every year and it is really special hundreds of thousands of women come together in over a hundred countries and 
together, we talk about the things of God for two days and one night and another day. And it is going to happen this year. 2020 is going to happen February 7th and 8th. And if you want to be a part, go to ifgathering.com and click on if local and you can host in your city from your place. And we want you to do this. If you feel like, oh gosh, I'm intimidated. I don't think I could do this. Join the incredibly large club of us that feel the same way. When I started If Gathering, it wasn't with might and power. It was with trembling and fear. And yet God moved through it in such a powerful way. And he continues to. And I want you to know that you're invited to be a part of this, to host in your place and to sign up and invite a few friends or a lot of friends into your living room or your church. And you'll be joining a whole lot of us that are doing this across the world. So go to iflocal.com. And if you're a Right Now Media subscriber, you can host for free and you can sign up for that through our website. So go join, be a part of this story and this sisterhood. You will love it. You will not regret it. Okay, so imagine having, I'm guessing your oldest is not a teenager yet. Yeah, 13, almost 14. Okay, so how is that going with a teenager? Is there a little bit of pushback? <laughs> yeah, it keeps changing. You know, I, I think the hardest times for families to do it are with really little kids where like, you know, you, you have to like chase them around the house kind of thing. And with teenagers, because obviously like my oldest son is the opposite of my personality. He's over the top extrovert, crazy high energy, you know. And so like his idea of Sabbath is not reading Wendell Berry poetry on the back deck alone for four hours. You know? <laughs> it's like he wants to like hip hop. I'm sorry, John White. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we're trying to create space, you know what I mean? So, um, you know, he's got a really hard school year. So it's actually he's enjoying Sabbath now more than he has in the last couple of years because he's so tired by the end of the week. So he loves it. And then if he wants to go out with his friends, we totally bless that and support that. And it's I'm more interested in him loving Sabbath and wanting to practice it as an adult than I am with him practicing it the way I think he should. And so that means that sometimes my wife and I have to sacrifice how we would prefer to Sabbath, you know, the amount of stillness we'd both love. But we know we'll get like this, this is a season when you have kids in the house and they'll be eventually gone. And um, every day will be Sabbath. <laughs> so uh, we're just trying to, <laughs> to celebrate, you know, and, and just gracefully adapt and defer to our kids a little. So we hold the line, you know, there's no TV, there's no none of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But we try to create as much space as we can so that they really enjoy it. You know, if that means Jude putting on some dance music where I would rather have no music, you know, within, all right, let's, let's do an hour of dance music and then we're back off, you know, yeah. whatever it is. So talk about the reward of that and how have you seen that help? Because for a lot of people, they're going to listen to this and they probably won't change their whole lives. Although I highly recommend that because I went through that season where I did, we reframed our lives, um, every part of them and it was worth it. So I do say there are times for that and seasons for that, but what could they do this week and what would the reward be? How do you see God blessing that practice? Are you specifically referring to Sabbath or just yes. to hurry in general? Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I think start where you're at, not where you should be. So even though Sabbath is a full 24 hour time period, and that's part of the genius of it at a psychological level, at a holistic level, there's something about that time that you don't get in a shorter time. 
But the reality is to go from zero to 24 hours is a massive jump for a lot of people. Slowly, gently move your way in. And I mean, the benefits are just all over the place. You know, there's relational benefits if you're in a family or in a marriage. There's emotional benefits. There are spiritual benefits. And all of this is interconnected. We're such whole people. For me, I just come down to the trifecta at the center of Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of John and in the writings of Paul of love and joy and peace, which I view as the central kind of realities of life in the kingdom. And they're not just emotions. They are the inner condition of the heart. They are the kind of people that we become through following Jesus. People who are loving, people who are joyful, people who are at peace or non-anxious presence. And those three dispositions require a restful, easy yoke in the language of Jesus, cultivated way of living slowly and even at times quietly before God as we do our work in the world. And um, Sabbath is a mean. Sabbath isn't an end. The goal of Sabbath is not to Sabbath. The goal of Sabbath is to become a restful person who lives day to day in awareness of and connection to God's presence and is year over year becoming a more joyful, loving and peaceful person. So Sabbath, like all of the other practices of Jesus, it's just a means to an end. It's a wonderful means. I thoroughly enjoy the means. It's much more pleasant than fasting or some of the other means um, that have very similar end goals in mind. But it's still a means. The end is, you know, what the early Christians called union, to be one with God and like God and to be about what he's about in the world. Okay, I want to ask you a big picture question. Yeah. You minister to this generation— in a city, a bustling city, what is your hope? Because you are very great at articulating some of the problems we're up against as a generation, but I don't sense that you're cynical about it. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. Being in Portland, you know, I am in one of the most, we're in the, it's just a new survey came out saying Portland's the least religious city in America. And, you know, hyper secular, crazy progressive, far left, you know, and we're right in the city center and working with millennials, first adult generation. That's the byproduct of widespread divorce. You know, we're 11 years into the phone, all the stuff. And I'm so hopeful, you know, the sadness of this future strain of America, the secular progressive strain is that the cultural architecture of a Christian shaped culture is gone. And that's hard as a parent, you know what I mean? Whether it be things about just commerce on Sundays or busyness or issues of ethics and gender and sexuality and, you know, worldview. Like, it's that's really hard to raise kids in that. But what I love about it, even though it's not what I would pick, is that the only type of follower of Jesus that really survives in the soil of this city are really rigorous apprentices to Jesus who live in daily prayer and live in community, not just go to church. And um, so what I, I, I know more healthy, thriving, wonderful churches in my city than anywhere else. And the next kind of cities I know with the, the healthiest churches would be places like San Francisco and New York and London, these hyper secular places. There's something about that juxtaposition. It's sad because Christians are such a tiny minority, but it's beautiful because it breeds, I think, a healthier kind of church and a healthier kind of, you know, cultural Christianity is just gone here. It's fully burned up and all the cultures in the opposite direction. So I'm so, I'm, I'm sad for, you know, the death of some cultural Christianity, but I'm so hopeful that I think 
what will survive in the coming kind of secular apocalypse is a really beautiful, humble practice of faith that is, I think, a way of life. That's my great passion. I think that Protestants since the Reformation have lost sight of the fact that the way of Jesus is not just a theology or a set of beliefs. It's not just um, an ethical system or do's and don'ts. It is that. It's not less than that. But it's more, it's also a way of life. Jesus said, come and follow me. Come and copy the details of my life. Come live the way that I live. Not just ethically, but like day to day and how I actually move through the world as a human being in God's kingdom. And so I think unless if Jesus is not just theology and not just ethics, but way, if he's way, truth, and life, man, you won't survive in the in the secular, technical, digital world. And so that actually gives me great hope. I'm just so hopeful for the future of the church. I love that. And I agree completely. I don't feel scared. And having lived in Austin, which is a little slice of California and Texas, and having now lived in Dallas, and, and no offense to Dallas, there's a lot of genuine people that love God here. But the movement of God in Austin is is so rich and deep because there's no cultural Christianity left. It's not something people do as a religion anymore. It's something they do because they have to follow God. Like that is their compelling, you know, the spirit in them. Yeah. So I'm with you and I'm excited to see what comes. It doesn't scare me. I just, I want there to be challenges that we have to overcome together. But I think you nailed it when you said we've got to treat this onslaught of distraction and noise and our lack of rest as a pretty serious problem or we're missing it because this is in direct opposition to God. Yes, this is not just about us feeling less exhausted and tired. And it's not even just about us becoming more loving, joyful, peaceful people, though that's key. This is about literally the survival of our spiritual life in the church in the West. I have far more worried about the phone than I am about secularism. You know, the church is often quick to point out the secular narrative as, you know, anti-Christ and really slow to do the same to the phone. But if if prayer, if if spirituality and prayer are anything, they are the ability to give God our attention. And if our attention is robbed by our phone, then our spiritual life will wither and die. And so like that sounds kind of dystopian and intense, but I really think a lot is at stake. And if we don't have both a rule of life that includes Sabbath and restful practices and some really strict disciplines around our phone, I, I'm I'm really worried about the the long-term health of our soul before God, you know? But this is all stuff that we can we can process together. I mean, we're only a decade into the phone, so we have to process this together as a generation of followers of Jesus. How do, how do we do this in a world that's spinning out of control, both with technology and busyness and money and materialism and politics? How do we root and anchor ourselves? This is Benedict at the fall of the Roman Empire. When the empire was in decline and everything was spiraling apart, barbarians come in. That's when Benedict comes up with the rule of life, begins to found these monastic communities that are an order of stability right in the middle of these cities that are falling apart. And I think in a sense, we're not not to go back, but there there needs to be a neo-Benedictine kind of monastic like, what does it look like to be a family and have teenagers and live right in the middle of the city and begin to like almost live with monastic kind of rhythms of prayer and work and rest and stability in an ocean of chaos? I think that that's the question. That's the thing we got to figure out as, as Christians, whether we're in Dallas or Portland or anywhere in between. Mm, so good. Thanks for being here, John Mark. Such a joy. Thanks for having me on. 
Hey guys, this is Chloe. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with John Mark Comer. We certainly have loved everything he's written and listening to him on the Bridgetown podcast. If you want to hear more from John Mark, you can go and search in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and search Bridgetown Church. He's got a whole series about Sabbathing and and all kinds of stuff. So you head over there and listen to those. And then John Mark has a book coming out on October 29th called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And it is everything that they talked about today and more. So you don't want to miss this book. This is the book that Jenny, that day that she went and kind of stole away for a day, this is what she read. And it truly has impacted the way a lot of us at the IF office have thought about hurry and Sabbathing and soul rest. So head over there and get that book and listen. Let us know what you think. You can also find John Mark online on Instagram. And then we'll make sure to put all these links in the show notes for you. So we hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being on this journey with us. And we will see you next time for another episode of the Made for This podcast. Mm